It is said the pen is mightier than the sword. And so is the truth. This week's guest, Giulio Vincent Gambuto, set hearts and minds on fire with his essay, Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting. In a special extended interview with Wise Up, we talk about personal power, how we can change things, and what it means to truly live. Enjoy. C-Suite Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Christina DiGiacomo, and this is Wise Up with Christina, and I'm so excited about our guest today, Giulio Vincent Gambuto, who wrote Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting and the sequel, The Gaslighting of America Has Begun. And we're I'm just so honored to have you here because... You just set my heart and mind on fire with your words, and I'm just I, I'm just excited for you to be here. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm just you know taking every day as it comes and and trying to get some fresh air every now and then when I can. And um, yeah, it's 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 going well. I I think it's it's I am making the best of it. We'll put it that way. <laughs> You're so humble. I love it. I'm making the best of it, but I'm also waking people the F up with <laughs> these really incredible articles. And also you have a film. So I definitely want to talk about that too. And so let's just get into it. I just want to explain to everyone, you know, how, why you're here, why I, I think it's important sure. for people to hear from you. Uh, I think there's a, there's a moment that for me is like, where were you when you first read prepare for the ultimate gaslighting? Cause I got to tell you, it, it shot right through my brain, like an arrow. And I remember exactly what I was doing and I remember exactly how it made me feel. It was just like, you were completely in, in my head uh, and in my heart. And I just felt just stopped in my tracks and I think that was the effect for a lot of people. I mean, clearly, you know, your articles have, have hit over 20 million views on Medium. It's like a Medium unicorn article. And so obviously what you were saying was resonating with people and it certainly resonated with me. And Thanks. so I, I know people want me to stop talking right now because they really want to hear from you. What you know, what was going on when you wrote that? First, thank you. I mean, I, I'm so, I, I don't even think flattered is the word. I'm just so touched that it resonated with people. Um, you know, I never really wrote it for that large of an audience. And I was floored by the response that it got and how far it went. And, you know, funny enough, um, I just checked with Medium this morning and 15 to 20,000 people are still reading it every day and it's a month later. So it's been really an incredible uh, experience, I think, for a writer to see that kind of reach. And I'm just so floored and touched that people were moved by it. So thank you. Um, you know, I think that the week before was particularly trying for me. This whole experience has been difficult and I know it's been difficult for millions of people. For me, it was, I've been alone for two months now. So I came back, I was actually in Seattle at the beginning of March uh, before I knew it was a problem to be in Seattle. And uh, I was there for a film festival for my movie and, uh, you know, news had been circulating then that it was about to become a hotspot for this virus. And so I left early. I left a day early to come back to New York and, and pretty much immediately went into quarantine knowing that, you know, it was now a problem that I had been in Seattle. And so I've been alone and solo for the last two months. And I think the experience of the pandemic is so different for everybody, depending on who you live with and how many children you have and what your job situation is. And 
you know, we're certainly seeing that across community lines and racial lines and socioeconomic lines. But I think there's a, um, you know, a, a unique experience happening with those of us who have been in the house alone for two months. And, uh, and for me, it, it had just gotten to me. You know, I, I tend to stay pretty positive. I tend, tend, tend to stay pretty productive, even in those moments that are hard. Um, but this was overwhelming and continues to be. And I think the week before I wrote the first essay, uh, was particularly dark. I mean, we had uh, five people in our outer circle, not inner circle, but outer circle uh, pass away. I'm very connected to the community on Staten Island where I grew up and my sister is a hairstylist there. And so she knows hundreds of people and I know hundreds of people. And it was kind of hard to escape, you know, meaning not escape the island, meaning escape the 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 knowing of people who had been hospitalized and who had died. And we lost five people that week, you know, people that we knew. Uh, I have a cousin whose father was found in his apartment alone, uh, who died of coronavirus uh, without anyone knowing. Uh, my boyfriend lost his mother to other reasons. Uh, he lives in California and she was living in Philadelphia. So I think just the darkness of it all took over, frankly. And um, I went to bed the night before and couldn't sleep and was restless and and then got up the next morning and sort of do what I do in those moments, which was write about it. And the one thing that happened right before I wrote the essay was that I got an email from J. Crew, <laughs> and it kind of just set me off. And uh, I started writing a rant on Facebook about how terrible these brands were and how dare they. And you know, four weeks ago they were telling us to wash our hands, and now they're selling these sweaters and. And then I decided to move the rant from Facebook over to Medium and, and write something a little more thoughtful than that. And uh, had my coffee and took a deep breath and then could compose something that I hope was elegant. Turns out that I think it was. And, um, and that's kind of how it happened. And, and we're all the wiser for it. Because you. I, you know, what was going on, what was going on with me around this time is the fact that I have a background in, in advertising, I knew that the We Care campaign was coming. And for better or for worse, some brands did a really good job with it. Some really completely missed the mark. I still don't think car advertisers know what the hell they're doing. Uh, and But I knew that that was coming and I just felt kind of sick to my stomach a little bit, knowing that I was going to be bombarded with these sort of hollow, ham-fisted messages. And then in addition, I was feeling this this note, hope that this whole situation was going to wake us up. And, you know, you talk about the great pause in, in the first essay. And I was really resonating with that idea, this notion of, you know, maybe we all need to kind of slow down and this is a time to evaluate and this is the time to really take in some hard lessons about how we've been living in general. And so there were these two narratives that were going on in my mind. And so that's when I read, uh, when I read Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting, I basically fell out of my chair. Uh, but I you know, what you talk about at the time, people were feeling very deeply, but no one had quite articulated it. We were having a hard time putting into words what we were feeling because there were so many feelings. And I want to share with you and, and everyone my absolute favorite quote, every sentence in this essay is gold. So I, you know, it was actually hard for me to decide what my favorite quote was. But my favorite quote was when you said, it is very easy to close your eyes to a problem when you barely have enough time to close them to sleep. The greatest misconception among us which causes deep and painful social and political tension every day in this country is that we somehow don't care about each other. White people don't care about the problems of black America. Men don't care about women's rights. 
Cops don't care about the communities they serve. Humans don't care about the environment. These couldn't be further from the truth. We do care. We just don't have the time to do anything about it. And there's something so deep and human about that idea because we all genuinely, our natural state is to cooperate with each other, to help each other. I mean, we've seen rise of humanity and, and people really stepping up to help each other in this whole situation. And so that's why I chose that particular sentiment as my favorite quote. Uh, you know, would you like to elaborate on that or anything else uh, thematically from the essay that you want to talk about? Well, thank you for pulling that one out. I, you know, there are, there are, there are lines when you write that, you know, uh, come from a deeper place inside of you. And I think that that's one of them for sure. And, you know, I, I think the line that comes right after that is maybe that's just me, but maybe it's you too. And, and I, and the reason I wrote that line was because I felt like I don't want people or the people who are going to read it to feel like I was somehow preaching and that I didn't feel this too, because I do. And that probably comes from a, a, a deeper place in myself than it does in anybody else. Because I struggle with that all the time. I struggle with, you know, my black friends and, and what their experience is and wanting to be a voice of reason and a voice of service and help to them. I struggle with women who say that don't, you know, men don't care. I do. I do deeply. Um, you know, I, I think we've watched our communities been being torn apart by Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. And, and, and these things, I think, are always false choices for us that somehow we have to <clears throat> pick a team or pick a side and that that's our only responsibility. And I think what I've been overwhelmed with in my life in the last few years, which I think was really the impetus for the essay and for certainly for this section, was that I don't do a lot as a citizen of this country, right? I don't do a lot. I do a lot as a consumer. I do a lot as someone who consumes media and uh, products and content and you know i work in the film business so i'm always talking about content <laughs> and so i think we're all consuming a lot and consuming is not just about buying a louis vuitton bag every weekend it's also about spending every night in front of the television and you know our our conversation really has shifted in this country if you sit down at any dinner table in any city you'll always talk about what are you watching, right? And the, the new TV shows or the new books and everyone is sort of catching up on their favorite stories. Look, I work in that business. I love that business and I love storytelling. But I also think that we substitute consumerism a lot for citizenship. And we, get, we allow consumerism to get in the way of citizenship. And again, I won't speak for everybody else. I'll speak for myself. That's what I've done in the last few years. I have allowed what I consume to get in the way of what I could give, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, what I'm calling on myself to do out of this great pause is to spend more time working in the community, spend more time talking about these issues, spend more time working on them. And I think that's going to look different for everybody. It's going to look different based on what you care about and based on what you want to get involved in. And I had a conversation yesterday with a very good friend who feels very strongly about voting rights in this country and wants to be a part of the change. He's a trained lawyer. He's a Harvard graduate. If he's not going to do it, who else is going to do it? And so, uh, and that's not to say that you need that credential to make change. In fact, I believe the opposite. I think we can all make change without a single credential. I think, though, that we have to start talking more about what can we do to make the society better um, instead of what did you watch last week, you know? And, um, and I think that that consumes our time. So, you know, with respect to that quote, it really is about time. There are only so many hours in the week. There are only so many hours in the day. And how are we spending them is the question that I'm certainly asking myself. 
Thank you for that. Uh, so I know that you're, you're uncomfortable with preaching. I'm not uncomfortable <laughs> with preaching. So allow me <laughs> to kind Pick of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was beautiful, by the way. And you. you brought up a, a number of things. So with regards to how we're spending our time and we talk about television shows or what it is, you know, that we're consuming, I almost feel there has been a, I don't know how to say it, but sort of a mass ego triggering going on where we are constantly being triggered to, we're not enough this, we're not enough that, well, you should watch this, so you're not cool at work. And it's almost become these labels and ways of defining our identities is what we watch or what we wear or, you know, and, and this has been going on for a really long time. And essentially what, what's been happening is our egos have, been, have taken on this, a life of their own because it's sort of like we're living who we are through what we consume. Absolutely. That you said that so well. Thank you. Uh, and, and there's a multi-billion dollar businesses uh, dedicated to trying to figure out how to get us to take on their label or consume their content or, you know, watch their media or, what, or whatever that may is. And, and I'm not saying that anyone is doing this in any sort of serious, nefarious way, but there's definitely a triggering going on. And we've come to believe that what we are is what we surround ourselves with, which is actually not true. That's not who we really are. Who we really are are those people who care about the environment, who care about other people, who care about communities. And so there's this been, there's, I feel also through this whole experience, a mass shedding of the things that we thought we were or are to reveal the truth about ourselves. And, you know, this is another reason why I really love your writing and your ideas. Um, and, and I'm just feeding back home, connecting to them. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. I, you know, I think the, sh the, the shedding is really important because I think that it's very easy to let the running around of it all get in the way. And again, you know, this is from my perspective in my life, but I've spent the last few years on a plane every three weeks and at a film festival all over the country and going and going and going. And it doesn't mean that the things that I'm doing don't bring me some semblance of joy in some way. But I also think that the going and the constantness of it all, the, the, the constancy is really troubling and it doesn't allow us a moment ever to take the deep breath that we need to evaluate whether or not this is what is sustainable for us or what is truly lighting us on fire or what is really getting to the core of who we are. Now, I'm not saying that we each should spend two months alone in an apartment because trust me, I can't wait for it to be over. But I do think that it has a certain effect on you, which is that you have no choice but to shed and you have no choice. And I think we're all going through it in some form, right? Which is, I can't go buy, buy, buy. I can't consume, consume, consume. I can't do all the things in my day, whether that's commitments or friendships or restauranting or Broadway shows or any of the, these things. And they're all in and of themselves wonderful things. But when you add them all up and you put them all together, they create a life for us that keeps us in constant, constant motion. And especially here in New York City, we pride ourselves on that constant motion. We love the vivacity of it all. And trust me, I love it too. But I think we, we have robbed ourselves very much of the moments to breathe and the moments to really figure out what it is that makes us tick. And moments like this that can be devastating and the costs are so high for why we're all stuck in our homes. Uh, but they can also, these moments can also be enlightening to us about 
how we do want to move forward and, and how we do what we do want to put back into our life when this is over. So well said. It's almost like we've been in this egoic, all you can eat buffet for a really long time when the real proper diet is stillness and truth. So I, I, I totally I get that. that. You said ego. I love that you said ego and, and I'm not a psychologist. So I need to, you know, prep, prep this comment by saying that, but I also think it's important because, so I'm a screenwriter. And so, you know, it, my trade is media making. And in that second essay, I talked a little bit about, uh, toward the end, about uh, story structure, frankly, <laughs> and about uh, the, the structure of all of our lives and the structure of movie characters and the structure of films and stories. And, and part of that journey is that, you know, in the beginning of the movie, not the first act, but the, the second, in the, you know, about 20 minutes into every movie, the character takes off on that very ego-driven free-for-all, right? That journey towards something that they want. And it's different in every movie, and so it's hard to pick one that encapsulates it. But, you know the thought of that character in that moment is I'm going to get what it is that I want by simply doing X, right? Like I'm going to get what I want by going, um, you know, to Disneyland. I'm going to get what I want by eating as much food as I want. I'm going to get what I want. And so <clears throat> there's always the mo moment in the movie halfway through where that character discovers that they're not going to get what they want by doing that. <laughs> Um, and then other things are going to happen. And then suddenly three quarters of the movie, you're going to find that character in a moment of stillness, in a moment where he or she has lost everything, where the thing they thought that they were going to get doesn't actually materialize. And they're in, you know, I said this in the essay, but they're in a cave or they're in a, you know, they're in the shower or they're alone in their bedroom or wherever they are. And they're forced to look inside. They're forced to take that deep breath. And they're forced to reckon with, quote unquote, the truth. And that's a different truth for every character. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a discovery that launches them into the next act of their story. And I feel very strongly like that's where we are in this country. The, the ego free-for-all that you're talking about was the 80s and the 90s and you know, when we got to 9-11, we had an opportunity to pause. We had an opportunity to take it all in and to make massive changes. And unfortunately, I, in my estimation, we didn't take advantage of it fully. You know, we came out of it. You know, that was the moment that President Bush said, you know, your patriotic, and I'm not quoting him, but your patriotic duty is to shop. So, you know, we came out of 9-11 thinking that the way out of our pain and the way out of devastation was consumerism, was to go shop. And so it sort of launched and kicked off the next 10 to 20 years of us shopping. <laughs> and, oh, look, Amazon exists. And, oh, look, I can just do it online. And the Internet is fueling this massive, massive uptick in consumerism. And so now here we are 20 years later being called on to pause again. And, you know, I'm glad that the essay has reached who it's reached because I would love to see us take this as a real opportunity to come out of this differently. Thank you. And I almost feel like this pause is, is more intense than the previous ones that we've been served. For sure. I mean, and when, when were we locked in our houses for two months? <laughs> I know. And, and, but it also kind of begs the sort of th very theoretical and trying not to fear monger uh, the question of, you know, if there is another one, will it be more intense than this one? If we don't, you know, if we don't take the lessons and, and make some fundamental changes. So I want to just switch gears a little bit, but not really, because I want to talk about the second essay, the sequel, which is The Gaslighting of America Has Begun, Resist, uh, which I also thought was, every sentence was gold. And so what prompted you to write a sequel? What, what, what was different here uh, than in the previous essay? in terms of your intention for it? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think, well, two things happened. One is, um, well, one thing happened and then I responded in two ways. What happened was that thousands of people throughout the world started messaging me. And after the first essay, I, in fact, I have a folder of responses that I still haven't gotten through uh, of emails and I'm pretty accessible on the internet. And so people sent me messages on Twitter and Facebook and <clears throat> on Medium and also directly through my website. And so I have about a thousand or 1500 emails directly in my inbox from people all over the world. And I think one of the things that they said primarily what people were asking was, okay, great. What do we do now? You know, what do we, how do we, how <clears throat> we hear you, you've struck a chord with us and now what? And so I actually wrote two essays as a follow-up. Uh, one I haven't published yet, which is about strictly about commercials and, uh, and messages and media and how to interpret them. And in it, I break down the kind of different levels of manipulation. And, you know, <clears throat> one being uh, pretty innocuous, one just being, hey, you know what, this brand probably just executed this poorly, but they're not being malicious and they're not being nefarious. And, um, and then the next level being, um, you know, this is, this is tacky, this is tone deaf, uh, this is coming, you know, not from the best crafted place, but it's still not manipulative. Uh, and then the next level being manipulative, right? Like specifically using music and images of togetherness and, and the care campaign that you're talking about, right? I would, I would confidently say that those are manipulative. And then I think there's a difference between those and then those that are gaslighting. Because I think that gaslighting is a very specific form of manipulation where the intention is to make you believe that you didn't see what you saw or believe that you are in fact a little bit like crazy, right? So when you start to ask yourself, am I nuts? That's when you're in gaslighting territory. Um, and I think we've been seeing it from our government for sure, directly from the White House. And so I think we'll start to see it from brands kind of in the summer and in the fall when suddenly you feel like the crisis never existed, right? So, and the reason that I didn't publish that essay was because uh, Medium really wanted this, this part two that was published. They read this part two and they thought that was a better part two. And so the editors at Forge and I worked together to, to get that out. Um, but I'm actually working on a book right now and I'm gonna save that kind of analysis of commercials and brand messaging for that book. But, um, but yeah, the essay that I did put out as part two, which you called the sequel, is really about scale, and it's about what power we do have to make a really big difference. And I look, um, you've read it, but for those who haven't, um, I look specifically at you know, what can we do indiv as individuals, what can we do as, in our families, what can we do in our communities, and what can we do as a nation. And, um, and so, yeah, that was really just prompted directly by people asking me questions about what can we do? Where do we go from here? Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. I can't wait for the book. What? That's just news, <laughs> right? They're breaking news, everyone. Uh, wow. Uh, I'm working amazing. on it now. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm working on it now. It's, um, yeah. We, I, That's exciting. That's yeah, so I, I wish I could share more. I can't, but I promise you I will. I'll share it directly when I can. And no but I'm working worries. on it and it's, it's a, it's a citizen's guide, right? It's a 200, 300 page book about what we can do to take back our power as citizens and consumers and what's the difference between citizenship and consumerism. And also, you know, how do we, what do we do now? Right. We've all sort of been woken up or at least those of us, who are paying attention have been woken up during this process and, and what do we do now? And so uh, I look at all of the different forces that are active in our lives and, and offer some um, you know, proposals and suggestions for how we can counter them. Amazing. I want to share with you and, and everyone uh, who's, who's listening, my favorite quote from the sequel. <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> now that I know there's a trilogy, I'm really excited, but I want to share with everyone this quote. What I do and what you do affects everyone else in this world. Fuck, it's so simple. I can only speak for myself when I say I never realized just how much I mattered. I now know that I have the power to save a life or unwittingly pass along an infectious sprinkle to my very best friends. And I picked this quote because for, for a couple of reasons. One, this idea of agency and personal efficacy that you have this realization. And I had this realization too in reading, in reading these words that even though I'm just one person, my actions create or have an impact or an effect that is exp exponential. Like we mm -hmm. forget about the sort of, we forget about the butterfly effect for yeah. lack of a better expression, but we've never seen it so clearly and demonstrated so devastatingly as this whole situation. So that's the, the one piece to it, which is I matter uh, and, and I have agency and efficacy, but also that my actions uh, have an impact. No matter how innocuous I may think they are, uh, they do, you know, I am a, a part of this world. There are people around me. There are animals around me. There is land and air around me. And what I do has a significant impact on the world around me and that maybe, you know, I should pay more attention to that. And so that's why I chose this, this particular quote. Would you, would you like to elaborate on this or, you know, cause I also do want you to talk more about the, the personal scale and the personal power theme that you brought through in this essay. Sure. I, I think that, well, I think that this has been a really personal discovery for me and I, and that's why I wrote what I wrote. And I think that I, you know, I'm moved incredibly that, um, that it struck a chord with people. Uh, you know, I think many of us walk through our lives thinking that we're only one person that we're only, you know, we are, we're part of a larger thing. Yeah, 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 we get it. But, you know, if I don't recycle today, whatever, it's not going to be the end of the world. And if I don't put this in the trash can the right way, or if I don't, you know, if I decide to drive when I really could walk, or it, it's not just environmentalism, it's, it's everything, right? It's like, okay, well, I think we're having that conversation now specifically with masks, right? And I think Governor Cuomo did a great job a few days ago of saying, yes, you know, uh, we wear the mask to protect ourselves, but we also wear the mask to protect other people. And that we have to start to realize that, especially in our cities and throughout the rest of the country, that what you do has a direct effect on everybody else. And, um, you know, I, I think that sometimes in our culture, we look at, ironically, you know, uh, when I published the first essay, my followers number went up on Medium, right? Like people following me went up on Medium. Like I'm incredibly flattered by that. But, you know, the irony is I don't believe in any of that stuff, right? But, but I kind of have to believe in it now because people are listening and that's my way to reach them again. So there's a conundrum I think we all face in, you know, in giving so much power and so much value to these metrics and these, these numbers that we've assigned to how many friends do we have and how many people follow us on Instagram. And, um, and, and I don't turn my nose at it. I'm just trying to find a way that that helps us. How does that make our lives better? And, you know, I think, unfortunately, the message that has been sent, I think unintentionally, has been that if you don't have that high number, that somehow you are insignificant. And I think those of us who have emotional um, wherewithal as adults can see through that, but our children can't, right? I have six nieces and nephews who 
I've only been raised in a world where people talk about Instagram followers and Facebook friends and the number of likes that they got on a post on TikTok or on YouTube or whatever other thing that they're using. And I think that's really problematic for us as a culture because what it teaches us without really teaching us, but the message that it sends is that if you're not Kim Kardashian, you don't have a say, you don't have power, you don't have a voice, you don't have legions of people following you. Therefore, you're not significant. And I think that that's the opposite of what I'm trying to say and what I'm saying and what I believe, which is we all have great power. And if we weren't on the internet every day, didn't have any friends to communicate our ideas to, um, then we wouldn't have anything to say in this world, right? But we all have power and we all have to start to take it back. And I think it's important that we look at our, at our lives. And this is certainly an exercise I'm doing, uh, as I keep saying, in captivity. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's an exercise that I'm doing now, which is, okay, well, where do my dollars go? Where do my clicks go? Where does my time go? And I did a, a financial audit of my January and my February before this mess started. So just look at, okay, where are my dollars going? And where has all my time been spent? And who am I giving my clicks to? You know, who gets my auto pay? Who gets my, you know, my screen time? Who, and, you know, I think it behooves us all to start to ask, you know, is that where I want to put that power? Wow. So rich. <laughs> so rich. You know, I think about what you were saying earlier about the, you know, the friend count or the follower count and, you know, reminds me of our, what we were saying earlier in terms of, you know, how we're defining ourselves and sort of the, the labels that we choose. And I think there's a level of attachment that happened, right? So the original intention, let's say of social media was connection and connecting to people right? And, and being able to see what your high school friends are doing. And it all seemed very, you know, it all seemed very in, innocent. And then there was just this other force that came in and began to, uh, to use your word, manipulate the, this notion of the number of people that are following you or the number of friends that you, you had. And this is all, again, that egoic layer of if I don't have this many people following me, then I'm insignificant. Mm -hmm. And which in and of itself is a, is a lie and a manipulation. And we get attached, the attachment to, you know, if I'm not at the Kim Kardashian level or if I'm not in an influencer level, you be, you know, there are people that are incredibly attached to those numbers and that's where you get hooked. So the non-attachment or the detachment from the idea or the notion that, that who you are and your agency and efficacy and power is related to the amount of people that you know, uh, you know, is really the goal here is, and, and I think that's something that you're striving for, to look at your followers as you know, these are the people that I've, that I've touched in, with my words or that are touched by what I'm doing without attachment, but maybe with just more of a feeling of, you know, being of service and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and connection and something that feels a little bit more heart-based and human-centered based than this is just a metric with which I measure my ideas or a metric with which I me measure how good I am. Uh, or how popular I am. And you're right, children are so vulnerable because their, their, their identities are still shape, being shaped and formed. And they're so vulnerable to, to these notions. Uh, and, and so I totally see what, what you're seeing as well. And then in terms of this idea of being the center, so that personal power, it's, it's kind of flipping the relationship. So in other words, you're, the number of people in your sphere followers aren't the center of influence. You are the center of influence for your own life. 
not anyone else. And I think that's really important. You know, yeah. that that you are the center of gravity and you have the ability to have impact and no one else in their opinions of you or whether they follow you or not or what they say to you has has really any control or impact over your own actions and your own impact and to stay true to your ideas and to stay true to what you're passionate about uh, and and with a level of service and not attachment to what anyone else is thinking or saying or doing uh, Which is so, incredibly yeah. hard. It was incredibly hard to do before social media. And I think it's <laughs> even harder to do now, right? It's very difficult. I mean, think about too, I know because you, you and I have talked about it a little bit before, but you know, think about the concept of the selfie and the concept of taking a photograph to document what's happening in your life at this moment. And you know, we all say it as a joke, but we kind of mean it. You know, if you didn't post it to Instagram, did it happen? <laughs> it's, you know, I think you're right about being the center of your own personal sphere of influence because we have to start to realize that um, that no matter whether we document it or photograph it or post it, it did happen. And there were people who saw it happen. And there are people who were moved by it happening. And, and I'm just talking about the day to day actions, you know, of, all right, I'm going to, let's use the example that I that I brought up in the essay, right? I'm going to use a fabric bag at the grocery store. Well, you know what, people saw me walk to the grocery store with that fabric bag, they saw me use that fabric bag in the grocery store, they saw me walk home with it, the people downstairs saw me. Those people may not be my followers, but they're in the, they're in my life, right? They're in the sphere of influence of simply by by measure of the fact that by you know, by the mere fact that they are in uh, in the same space as me during the day. So, you know, I think we have to realize how much power that we have. I think we have to begin to use that power and turn that power. Um, I, I've got a little bit of criticism in some feedback that I've gotten in messages about being a socialist. I'm not, I'm a capitalist, right, at, at, at heart. I believe in our system. I just think that our system needs some fixing. <laughs> I think that our system needs to be focused on some different things. And I think that when we have a system that's based on GDP and gross domestic products, and that we're constantly driving for investor share returns for everything that we do, and we have to keep, I mean, we're just creating a system that's unsustainable. So that's a, an entirely different conversation, but I think an important one, which is that I think, you know, we have to find a way to put our time and clicks and dollars into things that we believe in, that make our lives better, that make our communities better, that make our kids better. Um, I'm not saying spend necessarily less money and I'm not saying spend less time and I'm not saying spend fewer clicks. I'm just saying let's be thoughtful and intentional about where we put every single one of those. Well said. There's something that I want to personally thank you for uh, but I also want to personally, as a woman, thank you for using the word gaslighting. It's something of uh, still uh, not a very public notion. Uh, it's not a word that's used in, in commonplace. And it's something that, you know, women have been experiencing and we talk about it, but it's not very common for a man to acknowledge it, let alone acknowledge it in this forum uh, and so publicly, even in the context of the fact that we're all being gaslit. But I just, from, from me to you, just want you to know how much it meant to me that you were acknowledging that this, something like this actually exists. Because I think for women, it also, it feels like people don't acknowledge that this actually happens or that this, this mm. word matters. And it mattered to me. And so I want to thank you for that. And I want to just say that publicly uh, for, for, for you and for everyone. Um, but I want to thank you also for just, just exceptional writing and exceptional ideas and exceptional truths that you're giving us this amazing gift and wising us up. It's like this massive wise up and, <laughs> you know, like... I think that we need to um, 
really listen to what you're saying and and I'm excited for all the stuff that comes next. Can I address what you just said before? Yeah, we talk go ahead. Um, uh, because I think it's really important. And first of all, thank you. I'm, I, I appreciate that deeply. Um, I feel very much like, um, you know, when I first published the essay, there was some talk on Twitter about whether or not I, as a man, have the right to use the term gaslighting. And I weighed in very, very briefly, and then I decided to not weigh in. Because I find Twitter to be sort of a quicksand that you just can't get out of, no matter if you're right or wrong or well-intentioned or not. But... Um, but I, uh, I feel very comfortable using the term because I, I lived it. I watched it happen. My father um, very much gaslit my mother for many years of their marriage, uh, especially toward the end of their marriage. And um, you know, without getting into great detail, I think uh, what I can say and can say comfortably is that uh, I'm very well acquainted with the concept of you're crazy. You didn't see what you think you saw. You don't know what you're talking about. You're the crazy one. And in the end, she was driven to prove that she was not crazy and was able to, to prove that. And, um, and, I, and I saw it happen. I saw the, the, the crossover between, oh, I'm being tacky and tone deaf. Oh, he's being manipulative. Oh, he's gaslighting. And of course, I didn't know these words when I was 13 through 19. And, you know, and I wasn't familiar with how to call it out or understand what was really happening. But, um, but I knew that there was manipulation occurring in our home. And so, um, look, I love my father dearly. And, and the story of our family is such that we have found a way to forgive and move forward and still be in each other's lives in a way that's really productive and, and quite beautiful. But it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that I, uh, unfortunately, was not witness to it. And so, um, yes, I feel comfortable and confident using the term because I, I really know in my, in my core what it is. And, um, and I think that without going too much down a tangent of our government at the moment, you know, I think we're seeing it from the government, right? We're seeing it in the in the uh, video that the White House played a few weeks ago in the White House press briefing. Uh, we're seeing it in a lot of his tweets. We're seeing this campaign to say, you're crazy. You're not right. This is not, you didn't see it the way that I saw it, or you didn't see it the way, you didn't perceive it the way that uh, it was meant or, you know, that ridiculous Clorox incident or that ridiculous disinfectant incident, right? You know, he came out the next day and said, uh, I was being sarcastic. No, you weren't. That is a lie, right? And it's like, uh, we, we are being led to believe that somehow we perceived these actions incorrectly. Uh, and that is gaslighting territory, right? That's gaslighting right there to say like, you know, um, I'm sorry, did I not see the same video that you saw? Did I not hear the same press briefing that you saw? Did I not watch with my own eyes you tell the scientists and the reporters that you were with that this might be a legitimate uh, experiment to, to, to test? So uh, again, without opening up that Pandora's box, I think it's important to just recognize that these things are already happening, that they're happening every day, um, and that those of us who have lived gaslighting in our own lives are very well acquainted with the manipulation that we're seeing. Thank you. I appreciate you, you know, telling, telling us about, you know, sort of the personal connection that you have with that term, sure. you know, and, and sharing uh, about your family. So, you know, I think that you, Ha certainly have a, an experience and an insight around around that that um, you know as far as I'm concerned you absolutely legitimately have every right to use that word well I just think it's funny it's a term that obviously originated uh, and you know gaslight gaslight the movie uh, was was the, the first major moment for the term but 
or at least, you know, in the public consciousness and in the movies. But, you know, I, I think the term is, uh, we know it through the lens of a man uh, gaslighting a woman. But, you know, I'm also gay. And so I see things a little bit differently gender wise. And, you know, I think there are plenty of things that we traditionally think that men do to women that gay men also do to other gay men and that men do to men and women do to men. And men. so um, I have great respect for um, the intention behind the criticism, but I don't agree. So. Okay. Fair enough. I, I, we covered a lot of ground, but I almost feel like we also just hit the tip of the iceberg and I cannot wait for what comes next for you, Julio, because you, you, I think have found a calling. I know this may sound woo woo and, and I hope you take this in, in the right way, but when, when something like this happens and someone does something like this that has, that resonates with people in, in such a way, follow the thread, just, you know, go, go with it and follow the inclination because uh, you are really doing a, a, an immense service for everyone uh, by just, you know, following this thread. And I can't wait to see what's next and read what's next. And I'm so happy to have met you. And I'm so grateful for you to have been in conversation with me. And um, I can't wait for everybody to hear from your own words, like how you feel and all your wonderful mm -hmm. ideas. So thank you so much for helping us wise up. Uh, thank you. I, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so grateful for the invitation. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope we can talk more. Okay, great. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.